Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, all kinds of stuff. And this episode, we will get you up to date on everything we've been up to. We'll respond to some podcast updates from other podcasters, and then we'll dive into the most controversial crime drama of the year. We will look at both the fictional storytelling and real-life consequences of the Netflix series 13 Reasons Why. And you've heard about the war on drugs. I will also fill you in on my war against Twitter. So joining me right now is the host of These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order <laughs> podcast, my true crime co-author, real-life husband, and owner of my favorite sunburned back-to-peel, Kevin Flynn. Hello, oh, Kevin. Oh, my God. The Kapari came in so handy. I know. They don't even, do they have an ad in this week's episode they or not? Don't. Free I, advertising. I should have like taken like Twitter photos of you rubbing my back. I slathered you up with oh, some Kapari. Oh, my God. It was great. <laughs> and, then I, and then I got in the bed and the dog started licking my back. <laughs> It was delicious. <laughs> Honest to God, yeah, Jesus. yeah. Also, That's just TMI. <laughs> TMI. My back of my neck, everything. Yeah. Well, you smell like an almond joy, as you know. Yeah. Also joining us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed PI, our vacation landlord, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. Welcome back. How how was Thank your cruise? You. Was it good? Um, it was pretty good. I'm now a member of the official painkiller club, and I have my very own tin painkiller mug, which oh. is really nice for coffee. It makes you really feel happy when you drink out of that. But thing. you didn't drink coffee out of that, did you? I did this morning. This I morning. was having a. I did this morning. <laughs> it broke it in with coffee for the yeah. first time. And also rounding out the panel is our favorite noir novelist and now growing his own podcast empire on the side, little little side action there, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Blessed be, Rebecca. <laughs> uh, <laughs> was that a Handmaid's Tale reference, Toby? It was a rare piece of Handmaid's Tale humor. Yes, uh. yes. And we are going to be talking about the Handmaid's Tale on Hulu in a future episode of this program. So um, We have to subscribe to Hulu <laughs> first. To yeah. to Hulu first. <laughs> That's kind of a, a prerequisite. Maybe Hulu will sponsor us and like throw us a freebie. I don't know. Uh, so, so, Toby, um, would you like to tell the rest of the panel the big news, the thing that happened while we've been off the air? So I am on a new podcast called Radio Free Dystopia <laughs> uh, with a journalist from New Hampshire named Meg Heckman. We launched, what, I guess a week ago and dropped two episodes. There'll be a third episode that's coming out about the time that this one drops. And it's about dystopia in film and literature and how it kind of relates to what's going on during our interesting times. It's about the intersection of dystopic fiction and... The real world. This shit that's the going down world. right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's it's really, exactly. really good. It's, it's like one of those podcasts that like, even from episode one to episode two, I'm like, oh, this is going to be one that like, 
I'm going to be listening to, right? Absolutely. Can I plug my uh, appearance that's coming up? Sure. I'm going to be on the uh, Jed Bartlett is my president podcast, which is the West Wing. And so along the same lines, looking back at a time when politics was all fantasy and everything happened the way it was supposed to. And it was adorable. It was adorable. Yes. That's a great podcast by our friend Lonnie Diane Rich. You were on that too. I was on that too. And I I also have some podcast news. Mm -hmm. We don't want to talk about your podcast. (sighs) Toby, tell me a little more about it. Can can we move on? (laughs) Well, I actually, Um, but but I have like a call out that I need to make. It's it's important. And maybe you guys should pull out your pencils real quick. Um, Because Uh, I have been asked to be a regular co-host on the Slate podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Yes, I've been asked to be a regular co-host on a parenting podcast. Oh my god! If you can fucking believe it, I can't, um, I can't wait for awesome. the I can't wait for the Amish <laughs> driving lessons podcast. <laughs> um, so, if any of our listeners are interested in hearing me and my wonderful co-hosts Gabe Roth, a very intellectual dude from Brooklyn who I cannot relate to at all, and the awesome. Carvel Wallace, who is a writer and editor uh, on the West Coast, you can make a phone call. Basically, leave a voicemail at 424-255-7833. We will take any question about parenting. Stepkids, little kids, big kids. We don't care. We'll try to answer it. Neighbors, uh, kids. Exactly. That's the slates. Mom and dad are fighting podcast and the number to call to ask parenting questions that I might get a chance to answer. 424-255-7833. Three, three. So, Laura, I, I just want to clarify one thing I said in the intro. I said you are were our vacation landlord. And just in case anybody's wondering, um, Kevin and I used a timeshare that Laura inherited from her Nana <laughs> on yes. our vacation. Yes. And we had a wonderful time. And I almost got eaten by a shark. And it was the best vacation of my life. So thank you, We Laura. swam with stingrays and saw a barracuda and a moray eel. And I really did almost get eaten by a shark. Yeah, the, yeah that I shark saw picture the shark, but, freaked yeah. me out. Yeah. I mean, I saw a barracuda once when I was snorkeling. And I was on shore so fast that, like, my husband didn't even notice for 10 minutes. Yeah. So I'm impressed, Rebecca, that you actually got that close. I peer pressured it. I knew my mom bought video would on protect me. Not the video, no, but I will put a video on Yeah, I'll yeah. Tweet it out. You'll see like the shark like swim underneath Rebecca and circle her at least once. And flick its tail in a very flick menacing its tail, way. Yeah. <laughs> oh. We were almost three crime riders on. Yeah, yeah. Well, I also had a shark experience this vacation. You went to Atlantis in the Bahamas? As one of your cruise destinations. It doesn't count as a shark experience. But I went through the tube and there were sharks, but it was a safe shark experience, unlike yours. You did that, right, Kevin? Oh, I did the tube. It's a water slide that goes, and there's a tube that goes through the shark. But there was once a shark that jumped into the slide with a dude. Didn't you see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I did not do the thing which was the five-story straight-down drop. No, I didn't do that one either. That looked very dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Props to uh, Atlantis Resort for having the best lazy river in the world, though. I mean, really. Oh, that thing oh. was awesome. That yeah. was like a half an hour long. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, these little guys in wetsuits would hop up and be like, ha-ha, scared <laughs> you, didn't I? <laughs> well, we are definitely rested and ready for this podcast. We are ready for this podcast. Uh, but before we start with our content, I just have um, one more thing that I would like to mention because I'm kind of pissed about it. Uh, mm-hmm. Kevin, how many times did it take you trying to get verified on Twitter? Oh, you mean the famous author Kevin Flynn? Yes, the famous, uh, the famous author, author Kevin and Flynn, co-podcaster on a Crime podcaster. Writers I uh, submitted my request to Twitter. How many a, times? 
once with, <laughs> with a very reasoned explanation based yeah. on their terms of service. Me too. Yeah. And uh, I was uh, verified. All right. So, which means I have that little blue check dot, that and it means says, your whole interface is different. I'm a celebrity. Yeah, the interface right. is different. Yeah. So it's like I me have, and Kanye can go like direct back and forth where yes. you can't. So I have now done this three times, mm-hmm. and I only did it a third time because my fellow podcasting friend Lonnie Diane Rich, mm-hmm. uh, host of Jed Bartlett, is my president and mm-hmm. a host of other podcasts. Chipperish Media. Yeah. She was the one who said like. I'm doing this. You should try it again, too. And I was like, I don't really care at this point. I've been rejected twice. It's so stupid. And I was like, you know what? Forget it. I'll do it. So I went ahead and submitted exactly what you submitted. Yes. Couldn't have been. Plus, mine was better because in addition to us having the same resume, because we have co-written four books together, Mm -hmm. and because we are co-podcasters on two podcasts, and because we want to make sure our fans are interacting with the real people, Mm -hmm. and because we showed that, you know, it's me, and I want to make sure people know it's the actual me and not other people with the same name. In addition to all that, I also wrote that I am, in my day job, a leader in a award-winning public media newsroom. (laughs) Um, And I got my third rejection from being verified, and I got to be honest, I'm pretty pissed about it. So I just want to throw it out there. I hear there is a pattern going on here. I think I'm part of it. You and think I'm it's, it's sexist? It. Is what you you've read? I've read, heard that and women seen are rejected more, or men are accepted more than women are, and men are like accepted that. quickly in uh-huh. a way. Women have to work harder for it, or something. I don't get huh. it. It's stupid. What? I shouldn't care about it, but I Why care don't about I it. I try next week. I'll yeah. you should try. And Toby, you should try and see what happens. Now, I would just say and one we'll thing. Back. I know this isn't like an attack on me. You're using me as the example. Oh, no, not at all. And, 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 and that's fine. And let me say one thing sort of, I don't know, about my situation and two, what I think the solution could be. The difference between your application and mine is, and the whole reason why the Twitter verification process came about in the first place was that there were people who had fake accounts and there's confusion between this John Smith and that John Smith. I made the case that there are many other Kevin Flynn's in the public sphere. There's a comedian named Kevin Flynn. There's another actor named Kevin Flynn. There's a Canadian politician named Kevin Flynn. There is, uh, I don't know if he's a How many Jad Abumrads are out there, Kevin? How many Eddie Peraltas are out there? That was my explanation. Right. And I think that went a long way for me getting verified. Yeah. If all of a sudden, I'm not suggesting that all of our listeners on Twitter suddenly open up fake Rebecca Lavoie accounts or start changing their handles to unofficial Rebecca. At Rebel Rebecca, Lavoie 1? Yeah, at Rebel <laughs> Lavoie 1. And trying to make out that there is a urgent need for you to be verified because you are the one and true only Rebecca Lavoie as opposed to just the only Rebecca Lavoie. Maybe there would be a sense of urgency that Twitter would take. Is no. everybody picking up what I'm putting down? Yeah, I don't think it's anything to do with it. If you look at the other okay. journalists that are verified – that have unusual names that are not repeated out there in the Twitter sphere. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely not because someone else has the same name as them and they might be confused. Well, they obviously have a different email contact than you do. And they have a thing called a penis. A penis, yeah. Okay. <laughs> How about anyway, we move on? Sorry to rant, guys, but I'm pissed. Can you tell? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> He was like, I haven't said a word in 15 minutes. Well, he's about to. It is time for uh, the first one in a few weeks. One of these things, Kevin. True crime podcast update. Now, this one is all on Toby, because as far as I know, he's the only person who's actually listened or uh, wanted to listen to this. But we've gotten a lot of emails and a lot of tweets from people saying that 
another podcast also did some analysis of S-Town, which, of course, we spent a few episodes on last month. Of course, this is Jim Clementi and Laura Richards, the profilers you know from CBS's John Benet special on their Real Crime Profile podcast. They did a show looking at S-Town subject John McElmore. Now, Toby, you actually listened to this episode, and I've heard a lot of chatter about it. So can you just tell us what happened? Yeah, I got a lot of stuff on Twitter, people saying that they'd listened to it and wondering if I'd had it and what my reaction was. Uh, So I gave it a listen today. You know, first of all, like Jim Clementi and Laura Richards, you know, they're professionals. And so I would probably take their analysis over my own. But that being said, in in some ways, we, we kind of agreed in looking at John's narcissism but they, they were really pretty harsh about him. Like they definitely saw him as sort of a maliciously manipulative character. And they, they really focused on the way he coerced Tyler, that other guy who they went to see in um, New York City who'd been with them before. They Mike. focused a, Mike. They focused a lot on what they saw as his mistreatment of his mother. Mm-hmm. And then they were very sort of fixated – more concerned with the idea of suicide being sort of a a, a very selfish and cowardly act. Mm -hmm. From my point of view, whereas I saw sort of John as, as, you know, as being a narcissist and being somewhat manipulative, but also being sort of fundamentally depressed, Mm -hmm. that was not their, they really looked at him as being sort of a predator. Right. And so I think a lot of the reaction was to this, very, very scathing personality profile they gave him. And I guess they came to it independently and then were, I guess, not surprised that they had come to the same conclusion, but they hadn't talked beforehand before coming up with it. And by reaction, so Toby, I don't do you know. mean like the, the social media well, reaction pe- people to are their split. profile? People are either like, I totally think they're right, or they're like, fuck them. They uh-huh. like, <laughs> yeah, right. like it's, it's literally yeah, there's, there's a lot of like venting actually on my... <laughs> My Twitter feed. Right. We, we, we actually wow. got an email from one of the people on your Twitter feed, Toby, that uh, I think that, okay. you, that you asked this listener to write. This is from Jenea. Uh, yep. And she wrote, uh, Jim Clemente and Laura Richards are at it again. From the same team that brought us a kid wielding a baseball bat and an imitation Jean Benet head, now we have an in-depth analysis of John B. and S-Town. That was harsh. Was John B. narcissistic? Sure. Was he a manipulator? Yes. Was he depressed? Yes. Did he suffer from mercury poisoning? Highly likely. They take such care when speaking of victims of domestic abuse, stalking, and crimes, but took no care in discussing suicide, which is a complex topic. They instead took pleasure in literally describing him as a terrible human being with a rotten core who was incredibly selfish, abusive. They brushed off his mental illness, et cetera, et cetera. And then she says, I'm not excusing his behavior, but I do recognize that it's not black and white. And to present it as such misses the mark. And that, that she, I think she does a good job summing up the people who are sort of very anti this analysis. Right, right Toby? Yeah, I think so. I mean, better than I did. Um, <laughs> I, I think another thing that was a little bit off-putting to some people was there's a third person who's on that podcast. And and she was taking a much less harsh approach and said she like kind of likes things about John. And, and their reaction to her was, well... He, he manipulated you as well. Ugh. And he manipulated uh, oh. Brian and he manipulated anybody who feels sympathy for him was, was just another victim of his manipulation. Right. Hmm. And that kind of came off as a little bit high-handed. Condescending. I don't know if they meant it. Yeah. 
if they meant it that way, but it's sort of like we could see through it, but, you know, most people couldn't. You know, I think there are a lot of people that have, you know, sort of a lot of affection for John as a, for lack of a better term, a character in that podcast. And so to hear things said about him that put him in a bad light, I think some people feel like they have to defend him, especially, you know, we heard a lot of people talk about episode six. Right. And, you know, about the aspect of his, his sexual identity. I think there are a lot of people that are really caught up in, you know, the idea that he is misunderstood. Hmm. I actually have a, a different take on this, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's bifurcated. One is that a lot of people are turned off by the condescension of Jim Clemente, generally speaking. The reason I didn't listen to this is because I did listen a couple episodes of True Crime Profile, and the way he talks to Laura Richards on that show is very off-putting really? to oh, me. Okay. I, I don't like it. But also- um, all right. It, Hang on, Twitter. No, but there's a second, <laughs> but there is a second sort of thing about profiling in general, which I find problematic. I'm not the only one. There have been many, many studies written on this, and I know you and I disagree about this a little bit, Kevin. Profiling is something that has been sort of held up in the culture as this like sort of mystical, magical bullet to crime solving, where like these experts are trained the at Quantico, and, and yeah, you know yeah. Clarice Starling and Silence of the Lambs, and you know you have like the profiler knows exactly what kind of person. There's a lot of fiction around profiling, but profiling is just a tool. Right. Profiling by itself has like never solved any crime, ever. It's just a way to sort of. And along the way, oh, that, that's a pretty broad. Statement, well, but, okay. there but have been and there have point. been a continue lot of your famous, very damaging missteps as a mm-hmm. result of sure. overdependence on profiling. The DC snipers, Richard Atlanta, Jewell, bar- and the Atlanta yeah. bombing, yeah. Yep. Um, and any tool which sort of for me creates a an image of a suspect who did a crime, thereby eliminating other possibilities. It's naturally problematic. Toby, do you think that, you know, when you're a criminal profiler, that it's essentially like you're a hammer and everything else is a nail? I was about to actually say something that was kind of like that, which is that I think that they may come at it from like what you're saying, from a perspective where they're used to profiling people who have done terrible things. And, and that's that that's sort of your default when you see things they, they really they, they pick them apart. And just like little things that, that if you look at your own life, you know, and, you, and you'd be like, wow, you know, how would they interpret my doing this or my doing that? I don't know. I mean, I they obviously they know a lot more about this stuff than I do. And I'm sure do they have more professional insight? <laughs> they do. But they're also not any they don't know any more about John Macklemore than you do. They really don't. They don't know any more about. I think it's I do. think it's hard. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the profiling off a podcast I think that's probably pretty tough. Right, because there was a narrative um, and a lens through which we saw this person. We didn't see any objective evidence of what John Macklemore was like. We heard Brian Reed's take. I think they would probably admit that it's all reading between the lines, right? right? It's right. like you're listening to this and then you're you're trying to sort of intuit the things that Brian missed mm-hmm. or like Brian didn't get. So you're, you're trying to sort of fill in the, the negative space. And I think if you're used to looking at people who are nefarious, then that might be what you fill that negative space with. Have you seen the kerfluffle about this on social media as well, Laura? Yeah, I have had some people tweeting at me as well. And I I didn't listen um, to the episode. You know, I listened to a couple episodes a while back, and I just wasn't super into this one. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that... 
it's tough because I, I have a real fascination with like mental health issues and things like that and psychological angles to cases. So, you know, I want to hear what the profilers say. But at the same time, I mean, it's like lie detectors. It's like not going to be admissible. It's not it's it's just sort of like you said, another tool, sort of a best guess. I mean, I think I'd be more inclined to believe, you know, my friend, the upmarket psychic than um, <laughs> I, I think she, she'd have more insight into what was going on. But, it, you know, I think it is interesting. You know, there are certainly patterns and things that you can look at that are similar with different people with regard to, you know, personality traits and what they might be inclined to do. And, you know, that's interesting. But I think it's just one part of the puzzle. It's not something that can be completely, this is the end all to be all. Um, and I think in this case, trying to analyze John from listening to S-Town, that's a bit of a long shot, because there's a lot more to John and a lot more to his story. It, it occurs to me that, you know, profiling as a tool, typically, I mean, I think the way that it developed was like, here's the crime. So we're going to come up with a profile of the kind of person who yeah. committed this crime, which is, again, I think I've already explained why I think mm -hmm. that's problematic. And there's a lot of data that also shows it's problematic. It's not just me talking out of my butt, I promise. But um, the thing where you sort of look at a person and then profile that person, that is the same thing that like we had a really hard time with people doing like in season one of Serial. It's what the prosecution did to Adnan Syed in his case, but it's also what listeners have done to Jay, just hearing like little pieces here and there about Jay. It's what people have done about Bo Bergdahl. It's like taking a real person and then creating a psychological profile and then putting it back on them as if you know. I mean, we make suppositions and uh, guesses and speculate all the time on this show, so it's like a little bit glass housey. Yeah. But we're also not pretending like... It's our job to know exactly what we're talking. We always say that we're making supposition. And I feel like with the FBI profiles, former profilers, they sort of have a, a way of delivering their guesses, which, by the way, are guesses. They're educated guesses, but they're guesses in a way that is authoritative and meant to exclude you from thinking anything other than what it is that they think. I don't know. It, it bothers me a little bit. What are you going to say, Kevin? Uh, well, well, first of all, just as a side note, when we talk about the development of profiling, we know that there is a series coming, I don't know if it's Netflix or Hulu, but uh, it's called Mindhunter, mm -hmm. and it's based on John Douglas's famous book. Which you loved. Which I love. Which and you love profiling. Like, that's, that's yeah, a thing it basically shows in. about how did, how did the science of profiling come about where you know some FBI agents said, well, let's look for some behavioral patterns. They interviewed a bunch of serial killers. Yeah, in prison. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's a really great background story. You know, we look through stories through the lens of being writers. They look through the the lens of these characters. You know, through a a psychological profile. That's what they do, and I'm cool with that. And like, you can agree or disagree. I'm reminded of when Ghost Set a Watchman came out that everybody lost their shit because Atticus Finch was a racist. Right. And it's like, hey, don't let that ruin your love for the fictional character that, that you grew up loving from To Kill a Mockingbird. That doesn't have to ruin in your heart what you feel about that. He's also not a real person. You know, if he's also not a real person. <laughs> All right. But if you really, like, you know, felt something for John, and it's like, you know, maybe he was a narcissist, but that doesn't have to be a moral judgment on him either. That's part of the character. And so if you like what they have to say or you dislike what they have to say, just feel about 
John McLemore the way that you you want to. All these things just sort of give you um, deeper sense of of who he was because he was a complicated person. Right, right. Now, um, the bigger question here is: Do you think that Jim Clemente could get me Twitter verified? Because I'll take back everything I yeah, said. He about was him about to until you started like. <laughs> sure, I like Jim Clemente, so it's, we're going to be a we're, we're gonna... we have a split household on Jim Clemente. That's here, right? fine. That's fine. <laughs> Remember, she's at Reb Lavoy, unverified. <laughs> All right. All right. Now, Kevin, uh, we are not going to do goofy ad transition this week, right? We decided we made an executive decision. Yeah. Because because, you know, we're, we're talking about suicide, like in the next five minutes. Yeah. So, so I, how about you just read an ad? Well, I, <laughs> <laughs> well let, let me tell you, we, we are going to get into some heavy stuff about 13 reasons why. And it's going to be hard to sort of we're going to try to pull apart narrative stuff and the controversial stuff about suicide. Talk about it all. But, you know, for all the people who you know are looking for a positive way to examine the issue and maybe find it, dare we say, entertaining, then I would recommend you check out Chris Gethard's new feature on HBO. It's a show called Career Suicide. It's a comedy special, It's right? a comedy special. He's a stand-up comic. I and love he, Chris Gethard. He, he's been doing this off-Broadway show, and it really came out of a, a, an anonymous fan letter that he got about depression. He, like, talked about his own stories, his own dark moments, you know, uh, emerging really blunt unapologetically honest ideas with his brand of humor. And so it ends up being a really great show about his own mental health struggles. It's a one-man show. It's very provocative. And he's trying to do things like destigmatize things like depression. And it's on HBO? This is on HBO. It premieres Saturday, May 6th at 10 o'clock. It's Chris's comedy and the exclusive stand-up performance cut through this dark subject matter in Chris Gethard's career suicide. Now, Chris Gethard is also the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Beautiful Anonymous, Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. He's wonderful. He is funny. He's wonderful. He was featured on a recent episode of This American Life talking about his mental illness with his dad. Uh He is just so wonderful. So check out Chris Gethard's career suicide on HBO. I'm going to watch it. I would watch it even if we weren't reading an ad for them. Yeah, it's it's, uh, serious stuff, but still incredibly funny. funny. He's very, very funny. Exactly. Well, another uh, sponsor we have this week are the folks, and new sponsors here, they're from Away Luggage. Yeah, so maybe you've just been on vacation, and you had that crappy old luggage that didn't quite fit under the seat, (laughs) and you had to put it in the overhead where where your buffalo chicken wrap was, and you couldn't eat it the whole (laughs) trip, and... And it's not quite the size that the TSA and the FAA say a bag is supposed to be anymore, which is why you need something like Away Luggage. Away uses high-quality materials, premium German polycarbonate, which is very strong and helps you get to the airport, to the bus station in style. Grandma's house. Grandma's house. They have these four 36-degree wheel spinners. I love the spinner wheels. Love them. Easy to move along. It comes in three sizes, carry-on, medium, and large for the, you know, those extended stays. But for the, me, because I bring all my stuff. Yeah, I go anywhere. I think one of the best features on the carry-on, it has a charger and a USB cord. Shut your face. So you can charge your cell phone and your tablet at, when you're on the go. So you don't have to sit around the outlet in the like airport waiting area. You're in, you're in all on an island airport you know, fighting for the one plug. You can be in a nice airport. No, you and plug like into your away luggage. I know somebody who has some away luggage and just recently took a trip. 
Who's that? Laura Bricker. Tell us about your experience. You know what? My son ended up with this. We had the carry-on. So we all had carry-ons because I'm one of those people who's like, don't pay for bags at the airport Mm -hmm. because they'll always check your carry-on for you when you get to the gate. And then you get free bags checked. But anyway, it was awesome. What was great about this bag is there was all these little sections that you could put things in and zip them in and keep everything very organized. Um, But the wheels were awesome. My son, you know, we're making him do his own, you know, pulling his own bag, which usually he's like, ah. But he loved this bag because the wheels swiveled around all the way around. And it was so easy to navigate compared to the bags where you're kind of lugging them along. The wheels go straight. They don't move. It was zippy. And it was durable because he sat on it a few times and I was like, oh my God. I'm like, you're going to destroy our new nice luggage. And it held up to him sitting on it while we were waiting at the gate. So, Well, that, Away does yeah. come with a lifetime warranty. So if anything should break, they'll fix or replace it for you anytime. It also comes with a 100-day trial. So you get to live with it, vibe with it, travel with it, Instagram it. Go to grandma's house with it. Free shipping on any Away order within the U.S. And of course, it's compliant with all the major airlines because why would you buy a, a suitcase that was too big for the plane? United may just decide whatever you have isn't compliant. So That's true. <laughs> That's true. For, for $20 off your order, visit awaytravel.com slash crime and use promo code crime, crime. during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash crime and use the promo code crime during checkout. It's a double, a URL, and a promo code. Hey, well, I tell you, they are durable. They want to make sure. Guys, if you go to that website, use that URL and that promo code. What would I pay for like a USB rechargeable port like in a briefcase or something like that? Especially in an airport, you're dying. If your mm-hmm. phone has 30% and you're about to get on a four-hour flight. Why you- can't your phone just have a charger built into your own phone? Like, Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. <laughs> But that's why we have away luggage. Away luggage. All right. Moving on, everyone is talking about the Netflix show 13 Reasons Why. We have gotten, I don't know, dozens of emails about it, tons of tweets about it before we made the decision to talk about it. And it is listed on Netflix as a crime drama, but the story centers on the aftermath of a high school girl's suicide as her friends listen to her life story after her death through a series of audio cassettes. Now, 13 Reasons Why is an important show for a lot of reasons, many of which are in conflict with one another. We will talk about the show itself, but I do just first want to look at the national dialogue that's resulted from this because it's relevant to stuff that a lot of us know a lot or a little bit about. This has become a very controversial show, really for a couple of reasons. One is that it centers around teen suicide, and another one is that it centers around the fact that other people can cause your teen suicide, and that maybe if you commit suicide, a 13-episode TV show will be made about you. There's a lot of reasons why this has become controversial. So I know that one of the things that's happened is that schools have started sending home letters and emails about this show. Toby, I know that you have a kid in school. Have you received any communication from your daughter's school about this show? Yep, we did. What did it say? It was saying that that they knew that a lot of kids were watching it and they uh, wanted parents to be aware of what the content was. And they were most concerned with the fact that uh, the show didn't depict what the school recommends or, or, or what is recommended generally, which is, you know, seeking help from adults, you know, essentially finding professionals, whether it's you're the person who's considering suicide or you're a friend or whatever, but keeping within a group of kids 
it's not what you should be doing. You should be seeking help from professionals. Huh. That's ironic, considering what happens in the show. I don't mm-hmm. think I don't think the person who wrote yeah. that letter for your school actually watched the show, Toby. You know, without I don't know what they were thinking, and I I you know I don't remember word for word what it was, but my sense was is that the depiction of of what happens when somebody does go for help mm-hmm. is not in itself very helpful right. either. No, that's, like if that, that's if that, true. If that's what you're setting up as an expectation for if you go to right. to get professional help, that that's a weird signal to be sending. It's like the Snuffleupagus effect. Like, no one will believe you when you have mm-hmm. this friend. So that's why Sesame Street decided to make Snuffy real after a gajillion years of him being maybe imaginary, right? So, so being date raped is like the Snuffleupagus? Well, oh my God. Yeah, I what? mean, that's... No, I, I actually know what both of you are saying. You're right. saying that Children's Television Workshop realized that Snuffleupagus was a good Sending idea. Sending a bad message. But that, right, the unintended consequence was that kids might get the message that people won't believe me if I can't prove it. Right. And uh, uh, and so if I'm a young kid and I'm in a bad situation, no one's going to believe me that my teacher, my uncle, right. et cetera, you can fill in the yeah. blank. They figured out that kids were very frustrated by the fact that no one believed Big Bird when he would talk about Snuffy Love because all the adults would roll their eyes and so forth. So they made Snuffy yeah. real to comfort the kids. Right. And apparently. I think there's a parallel there, and then we'll get into right. it, where I think it starts off as very well-intentioned, not only just by like TV writers and whatnot, but both of these shows – have psychologists and academics who are consultants and thinking that this will work in this way. Right. And the consequence ends up being completely different than what they And you and I actually disagree on this, which we will talk about. Laura, you know, you are a reporter now. Kevin, you've been a reporter. I'm just going to ask Laura this question first. You know there are sort of rules about reporting around suicide, right? Have, Have you confronted that at all in your professional life? Yeah, and I will say, you know, our area, my school district has had a horrible run of kids committing suicide, so much so that now the local hospital has partnered with the high school and they're actually giving out grants for suicide prevention programs. And um, so when, you know, we would have cases and I've covered a lot of suicides in this area of students. And initially, it's like, you don't say the name of the student, or if you know, if there's say there's a kid that's missing, and then they find them, you know, you wouldn't say in the newspaper, unless the family said it was okay, that that's what happened, you would say they had an untimely death or something or, you know, something like that. In recent years, I think it's become more it's more visible in, in the area, in the newspaper here, especially because people are so uh, much more aware of recognizing the signs of teen suicide and getting the word out and taking the stigma away. So it's definitely changed from when I started reporting. And it was like, you never talked about it. And you didn't, it was like a little brief in the newspaper. So it's definitely, I think that it's become more mainstream to actually be out there with what's going on. Yeah, there are no rules or laws as such, you right. know. Um, there are journalistic there, there standards. Were sort of, yeah, sort of yeah. rules of thumb about that. Generally, suicides, if it's a famous person like a Kurt Cobain, then you report it as, as such. If it's a private individual who does this in their home, the rule of thumb is that you wouldn't report that. But that you might is, call it an untimely it, death. Or you well, might it wouldn't it. make the newspaper. Like I will say, the Hannah Baker case that is in this this uh, wouldn't have been saying, in the newspaper. Wouldn't have been in the newspaper. Right, right. If it's a private person, but they do it. Like if they did it at City Hall, which makes it 
in public. Makes it in public. Then you have an argument that this is newsworthy. I can tell you a lot of times where we would hear on the scanner something, uh, the 10 code for like a dead body, like 10, I forget what it is, 10... 35, whatever it was, Laura probably remembers. And so we would call, we're on the TV station, and like, you you know, we hear that there's in the parking lot of the supermarket, and, you know, the cops, they know it's a suicide, they don't want it to get out, and I'm basically, you know, we're thinking, is this a homicide? I would say, we don't cover suicides, so if there's a reason why we shouldn't come to this, maybe you'd let me know, and they would say, you don't. You probably don't need to cover this right now. So they won't. They won't confirm but, it's a suicide. But can you they go won't back review. and explain? But why? why that is? Okay. Why is that? Well, there had been a lot of pressure. I think that uh, that came in during the nineties. Where eighties. Eighties. Okay. I well, remember it in the eighties. Okay. Yeah. But, but a pushback with the media, or trying to work with the media to understand that there is a phenomenon called the suicide contagion, where young people who are suicidal do gravitate towards stories about that. And unlike we scoff at the idea that kids who are exposed to sex education will have sex all of a sudden, or kids who watch a murder mystery are going to kill somebody. But it is different with suicide because part is mental illness, depression, and things of that nature, that kids will, when they see that, they will think that this is a solution to their problems because this happened and that person who committed suicide got all this attention. Isn't there also guidelines against describing the way that the suicide was committed, like the method? It's the same thing, yeah. It's just not reported, period. Well, I, you know, I have reported these things. Yeah. When the family wants it out there, I have reported. Like, I've reported on a boy who accidentally killed himself by huffing in his closet by putting a plastic bag over his head and filling it up with, like, nitrous oxide, and that was an accidental suicide. So we have, when the family wants it out there as like an awareness thing, I have reported those things. Mm -hmm. There are professional societies like uh, groups of psychologists and guidance counselors who have put together guidelines for the media that they suggest, for example, to not to do things that don't glamorize it and aren't explicit because those details end up drawing people in. And I I would say as, as a journalist, yeah, it's true. We can tell the story in a complete way that also doesn't do harm. But one of the things in the guidelines and one of the things that I've heard criticized about this show, which it's an editorial discussion, is do you report on, talk about, or fictionalize the aftermath of someone's suicide when other kids are sad, paying attention, Mm -hmm. putting flowers on lockers, thinking about it, talking about it, and in the case of this show the entire school is becoming like the entire thing that is driving everybody's action. That's the thing that like all of these experts worry about. The fantasy that if I commit suicide, everybody will be sorry and everybody will be upset and I can manipulate them and take control of a situation after my death that I can't right now, which is exactly the plot of this book, which was made into a miniseries. Right. And I know we will actually talk about the story in and of itself. There's a lot of really great performances and interesting storytelling. And everything that's really great about this miniseries is exactly what's bad about it. Well, everything that's great about it is what people don't want people to do. Yes. That's what I think is so interesting about it. And, and one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is how different 
times are now. So when I was growing up, and I don't know if any of you guys remember this, uh, a very controversial movie that came out was a movie called Heathers. It came out either in the late 80s or very early 90s with Winona Ryder Mm -hmm. and uh, Christian Slater. And it was a dark black comedy about basically a kid who was murdering other kids but like staging the murders as if they were suicides Mm -hmm. and the reason the movie was controversial was because it depicted the aftermaths of the suicides as being very like you know the guy whose whose son died and he was like oh i love love my my dead dead gay gay son son. you know the 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 girl who died and there was the huge funeral with all the flowers and stuff and it was basically it was controversial because it was saying like even the perception that people are sad after a kid commits suicide is not a good message for other kids to have who might be having suicidal ideations. And a lot of it isn't the, I want to take revenge. on A lot of it is just kids with severe mental illness who just want to see an upside to the thing that or they've Or situational been about. depression or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. There's obviously a lot going on. It's not criminal masterminds right. who have decided, I'm going to put this very Byzantine plan in motion right. to get back at everybody. But the thing that I've been thinking about is that we are living in a completely different mm-hmm. time with social media, mm-hmm. kids communicating to each other, not on the phone out loud when their parents are home, not even by email and instant message, but by you know apps like Snapchat and you know Yik Yak and... And like the conversations are so fast and so different now. And I wonder if it is time for the rules to also change because I don't know. That's one of the things I've been thinking about because this series is uh, it's controversial, but we're in a completely different time than we were when a lot of those guidelines and rules were written. And I don't know if this is even worse because of that or more OK because of it. And that's kind of what I've been thinking about. Uh, what do you what about you, Toby? I guess there's two things. One is, is that. You know, their perception of the same kind of information, I don't know if that would have changed, but I think it also, like, no matter how much you don't report on things, if somebody commits suicide in a high school, everybody's on whatever. Everyone's going to know. And there's going to be a lot of going back and forth on social media that you'll be able to see so that you're not dependent anymore upon the newspaper or the local news or whatever to be giving you the news about that stuff. Like kids themselves are going to be going back and forth. So I think you can draw conclusions that way. And you can also probably feel like you can manipulate. Like if your idea is I'm going to commit suicide and manipulate people, that's got to seem like a lot more possible. Right. Well, Hannah Uh, basically made a podcast about her life. Yeah. which, Which is interesting. But also, you know, the other thing that I was thinking too is that like, Kids today, which is like an expression that's hilarious mm-hmm. to say because I'm, you know, people who say it about me. <laughs> yeah. Kids You're today, old. Go for it. Kids today have been raised by parents who are like, this is bred within us. We have were raised under those guidelines where like suicide is selfish. You're leaving people behind. We have been indoctrinated I, with all of those messages. Yes. Again, I don't think we're unique, but I agree with you. Yes, we have. And our kids... Like, my kids, when Henry was watching this with us, who's 15 and a half, he's like, this is so stupid. Everybody knows that, like, suicide is, like, not a solution to your problem. We don't have to worry about Henry. You have to worry about the kid who suddenly can, right. this is different, binge watch 13 right. hours of this suicide fantasy. I think the rules are changing. And I think, you know, like, I, and I keep going back to this, but, like, you know, I, I'm, I've covered this suicide prevention week program at our local high school last fall and so it's i feel like the rules are changing with the kids where they're talking about this and like this weekend in my town they're having a 5k race that's being hosted 
by this Connors Klein Foundation, which was founded by the parents of a boy in town who committed suicide. And so I feel like the rules are changing where we're talking about it more, but it's us as the parents that are maybe more, like you said, more reluctant to yeah. make it. But but like the younger generation, I feel like the stigma of talking about it is being taken away. And and what comes to my mind is, you know, I'm covering this this talk and you know, here's this mother and it's just heartbreaking to listen to her talking about her son dying and, and she's going to the high school that he was a freshman at when he died. And so afterwards, I get some students in the crowd because I want some student reaction. And this girl, who's a senior, tells me, I said, well, what was your reaction? She says, well, you know, I went through a period where I was suicidal and I tried to kill myself. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, you want that in the newspaper? And she's like, absolutely, because I want to, you know, try to help other kids who might not know where to turn. Right. So I feel like the kids are changing the conversation around it more so than we are. I I do think that a push toward the destigmatization of talking about it is good. The problem is mental illness is not at play in this show at all. And that's, that's something one of the that problems. a lot of yeah. criticisms of the show have pointed to. I watched yeah. the documentary, the supplemental episode on Netflix that goes along with, you know, I think it's called Beyond the Reasons. And it certainly seems like the actors and the writers and the producers were all very earnest. One of the producers is Selena Gomez. And you got to remember the source material was a YA novel from 2007. So it isn't like this just sort of popped up out of nowhere. The kids have been reading this story for a decade now, but they all seem very earnest about the idea that, look, nobody's talking about this, this is an important issue, we think we can bring some stuff to it, and they talk about, you know, the suicide scene, we did it this way because, you know, we didn't want to over-glamorize it, but we didn't want to th- show that, it, we didn't want people to think it was just, painless, you know, painless and yeah. slipping off into the night. Any conversation is a good conversation, and I think that they really had the best of the best of intentions on this issue but it just is it is it's like removing wetness from water you can't do that well the it's, word depression i mean the character well, let, let's talk about the story let, right, let's just let's, let's pivot yeah. and i'm just yeah. going to i'll start it this way uh, because i think it's important to say it first the character of hannah in the story is clearly depressed but they don't say that and they don't talk about it that way mm-hmm. and that is a problem that is one of my few problems with the show because i'm going to lay my cards on the table there are a lot of issues with the show, but I really, really liked it, and I didn't think I was going to. And uh, you liked the show. I yeah. like it as a show. Mm-hmm. I'm not yep. I, sort of divorcing myself from the the controversy mm-hmm. for a second. And I've been finding myself like the other day we were doing a, this, these are their stories episode with Sarah D. Bunting, who for a living does television criticism. Mm-hmm. And I sort of said to her before we taping, I'm like, "What did you think of Thirteen Reasons Why? Did you like it?" She goes, "I did." And I felt so relieved because I was like, I liked it too. And I find myself trying to connect with other people who actually just like it as a as a show. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of good stuff in the show. And the question is, can you divorce it from the crap? Well, let's talk about some it. of the yeah. stuff that's I, I good. I liked it too, Rebecca. I liked it too. Oh, I'm so relieved. Now, Toby, you didn't like watch much of it, right? I, I watched the first episode and... It seemed really bad to me, and I, I realize that I'm in the minority here. That's okay. That's okay. It is a little Degrassi, did, did a little they, after school special, the way it starts. <laughs> yeah, well, they just, there, there were so many sort of shortcuts and implausible things and sort of cheap aspects to it. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of that, that the whole time. It, it, it didn't make, it, it didn't make me want to watch it anymore. And it's just like, like the, the like 50s kid. 
I'm like, what the hell is that? Oh, he's my favorite. You mean Bernardo <laughs> from West Side Story, Tony. aka Tony? Tony yeah. <laughs> I was like, he's but, 35, but just like, right? I, I feel like that's. I feel like I've seen like several things like this where there's like a 50s kid who's yeah. a greaser and he has like an old car. <laughs> and it's like I've never seen. You've never seen an actual kid like that. Where can you find like, a black? There's plenty of kids who like. Yeah. There's plenty of kids who like act like they're like 60s hippies or something, but you never see that in these shows. But there's like some greaser kid, and it's just bizarre. You didn't anyway. watch it long enough to find out more about it. Okay, yeah, so 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 much more to him. So um, so Toby, do you mind if the if the three of us just talk about plot for just a little bit, and then we'll ask you maybe some questions along the way that may or may not relate to that? Just you haven't seen the show except for the first episode, right? So what you're saying is, if I say, yeah, I do have a problem with that, we'll do something else. No. <laughs> No. I'm just gonna sign off. I'm saying. Are, are you just sort? Of, are you just sort of politely saying that's what you're gonna do? I'm sort of partly saying that's what we're gonna do. And can you hang out? And maybe we'll consult with you here or there. Mute your mic. Grab yeah, a beer. Because I, I don't expect that all three of us liked all of the show. And and mm-hmm. Toby is, I think, points to something that is a flaw in the first episode. That's also a flaw in the first three minutes of every episode, which is that it basically looks and feels like an after-school special from the 1980s uh-huh. with the music and the theme and, uh-huh. the, and the, the graphic. And it's the, like, you know, he's like followed by a car when right. he's like biking around something, some car falls. It's like, what the hell is that? That's Tony, man. It's anyway, Tony. <laughs> was it Tony yeah. the first time? It's Tony was it Tony the, the first time? It's Tony all yes. the time. Yeah. So uh, how does he know where he is? Well, anyway, never mind. Because he follows him around. That's how he knows yeah. where he's he is. A stalker. Well, you know what? Tony actually brings up one of the things about this show that is to me different mm-hmm. and wonderful. Uh, that it mostly done well, with some exceptions. Tony being one of them is the diversity of the cast in this show. There are people of all creeds, uh, most, many, sexual interactions, not all, but many, uh, different looking kids, different... You have Latinas and Latinos, you have, you have African Americans, yeah, you, you and have an Asian Asi- American, yeah, and, and, and gay, it's, straight, And yeah. it's not part of the plot, except for there's a couple of little pieces here and there that are, but like you've got mixed race couples and like that's not the issue. It's mm. very much, they do, I think, a, a pretty good job of having like, a very diverse cast. Mm-hmm. You ready to have your mind blown? What yeah. if I told you the actress who plays Hannah was Australian? I believe it. You believe it? Oh, I totally you speak? believe it. Oh, it blows my mind. Oh. It's like <laughs> so Idris she could Alba. do an American like, accent yes. better than Nicole Kidman? Yes. Oh, yes. Somebody finds it. A hundred million yeah. times better than Nicole yeah. Kidman. But I really liked the aesthetics of the show. I liked the diversity. I did think that Tony looking exactly like Bernardo from the movie West Side Story was <laughs> absurd. Yeah. And, then, and, and initially I was like, there's this Latino kid of course his dad's a mechanic and of course he drives a muscle car and of course he has a pompadour and has to be like a character. But then as the show progresses and there are lots of other Latino kids and there are black kids and there are Asian kids and there are kids with piercings and tattoos and like all sorts of I realized that Tony was just sort of part of a bigger landscape of these kids. But wait, how old do you have to be in that fucking state to get a tattoo? <laughs> because you're gonna be like 18 around here, and there's like I'm a sophomore, and I'm like my whole chest is tatted up. Now, Laura, I would love to know some of the things that the kid you... who has no money has a tattoo all the way across. Oh chest. yeah, the, the kid who literally can't afford a pizza has <laughs> pizza. Yeah. yeah. Now, Laura, uh, I would love to hear some of the things that you liked about 13 Reasons Why. Well, I liked I liked the kind of the mystery angle of the show in terms of you know as we're listening to the tapes and trying to piece it together, how you know trying to figure out where are the clues as to who's going to be the person 
that is mostly responsible or who's going to have done, you know. And for me, a lot of the mystery centered around Tony. I mean, I was just like, who is this guy? What is his role here? You know, and I'm not going to give any spoilers, but that really was one of the things that kept me going because I felt like, okay, he's got some bigger role in this and I want to know what it is. And it was interesting. He was kind of like the facilitator. Um, He's like Clarence and It's a Wonderful Life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We'll even have an Uncle What's-His-Name moment with the bank deposits go missing. (laughs) Old man Potter found them. So, you know, that was something I liked. You know, for me, it's hard not having a teenager yet to see this very graphic teenage world and it just is horrific to me I've got a few years before I have to be there so I but that that part was tough watching um the teenage parties and just you know how some of these kids treated each other was just that was disturbing to me but I did I kind of fluctuated back and forth between that and then also kind of liking the mystery and how the story was being told through the tapes and trying to kind of piece that together. It was a little confusing for me sometimes when they were flipping between past and present. It would take me a little bit to be like, wait a minute, is this on a tape? Does Clay or have a Band-Aid is... on his head or yeah, not? Yeah, you got to look for the Clay yeah, Band-Aid. And like, yeah. <laughs> well, like, and some of his makeup, I'm sorry, but towards the end, I was like, seriously, this doesn't even really look like you've gotten a fight. It looks like someone drew, like, <laughs> marker across your face. You I mean, seriously, yellow. that last, yeah. the last episode, the last time you got beat up, I'm like, really? Hmm. Um, and then I'm going to give you my biggest pet peeve of this entire show. And I, you, you all knew this was coming that watched it. I just kept like screaming, why is Clay's mother taking this case? That is that in real oh. life, that would never <laughs> yeah. happen. Conflict. She should be conflicted out. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, what the f- I, I was just like, no, I'm not that. So I was like, okay, it's TV. It's yeah. TV. They can do it. But she, she'd totally be, wrong. She'd be conflicted. Kevin, if there's something that you liked about 13 Reasons Why, what was it? Uh, well, I, I love the lead actors in this, the the Clay and Hannah, those yeah. actors. I loved watching them. You, I really felt for them. Obviously, you know Hannah's fate. And but you're I hoping just, it doesn't happen the whole you're time. You're hoping it doesn't happen. You, you know, she's Every- such a, you know, a smart, sassy character, and she plays her well. And some of the leads, like Kate Walsh, are good. I didn't care so much for some of the teenagers in, in the crowd like there. Like the ones that look 30? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, it, and like, here's where, you know, I think it went off the rails a little bit, sort of halfway through. Then it becomes about, well, what are all these diverse kids? All of a sudden, they're like in some criminal syndicate. Well, where I, they're like, <laughs> why are they all of a sudden like ganging up? And, and there's, Clay can't listen to all the tapes. That whole weird thing just kind of. I actually liked that initially. See, when I we first started watching this, and, and one of my complaints about it was that, and as Sarah put so eloquently when we were talking to her about it, each reason did not have to be a whole episode. Like, yeah, right. it did. There were some pacing issues because initially. And why does it take Clay like three weeks to listen to these tapes? I said he listens to tapes like you read. It it's takes him forever. Yeah, he has a listening disorder. Yeah, <laughs> he needs he needs like a tutor for how to listen. Does he not know how to use the rewind button? He's using a pencil to. <laughs> um, but I actually there was a sub mystery going on that I think just ended up dragging the show down. But that started out as being the more interesting part which is that there's the surface mystery, which is what happened to Hannah Mm -hmm. and Clay's listening, and then all of a sudden the other kids are all talking about Clay and the tapes and what part of it. And then initially I was like, ooh, there's a sub-mystery, and that's very interesting. Well, how Clay fits into this? That didn't end up bearing any fruit, I don't think. But it had had interesting potential, though. Yeah, Kevin, um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you was um, one of the things that you said – 
couple of times we were watching it was there was a theme of baptism in the show, yeah. rebirth. Like, can you just talk about that a little bit? Well, there were times when you look at the way water is depicted, where you have, uh, I think it's Alex, the kid with the ring in his nose, where he lets himself fall into the pool. Uh, there's this, the shower scene with Clay, a uh, shower scene with Jessica. Each time, that's a classic representation of a baptism where they are changing and where they're accepting something and moving on to the, the next part. And also, in a way, it continues with the thing where Hannah dies in the bathtub mm-hmm. as well. So I, I saw that that, that was— Which a, is not a spoiler because you know that in, like, episode one. Yeah, you know, know that in episode one. Sorry, exactly. guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I thought that that was an interesting little take. Now, one of the things that I think this show does well, and we've talked about this before, we talked about it with Stranger Things, we talked about it when we've talked about, like, Stephen King fiction, and we've talked about other kinds of crime stories, um, mm-hmm. the one about Slenderman. The Slenderman, yeah. Um, there is, and, and I think, Toby, this is something you can weigh in on, even though you haven't seen this show, there's a huge theme in this show about keeping this amongst the kids and kids bending over backwards to keep adults from finding out what it is they're up to. And this is something I when I watch a show like this, one of the reasons I liked this show, this show does a very good job portraying that like you have very good kids in this show who do communicate with their parents like pretty well, like Clay, his relationship with his parents is. Yeah, there's something going on. I'll be home at this time. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I can't tell you what it is right now. He's actually being a good communicator, Mm -hmm. like drawing boundaries. But for the most part, like they don't want any of the adults or parents to really know what's going on. And that idea that like teen lives are by nature secret. I think that makes for an interesting narrative almost always when it's done well. Toby, you didn't get far enough to see it play out on this show, but... Is that a theme that you recognize as something that comes up again and again in, in stories? Sure. But I, I think in this particular instance, right, that's one of the criticisms. Yeah, sure. That's not what you're supposed to do yeah. in these situations. But, you know, Toby, to be fair, and Hannah does not throw out suicide signals to the other kids in the show. Really, it's all retrospective. So the stuff that they're hiding in the show is stuff about drinking, stuff about sex. Post-suicide, the stuff they're hiding is stuff about drinking, stuff about mm. sex, stuff about sexual assault, stuff about where they were, the, the the damage they caused by doing stupid shit. It isn't like they all saw she was suicidal. And it's weird. It's weirdly framed. But, okay, so, I you know, I only watched one episode. But in that episode, there's there's a picture that's taken of her on the slide. Yeah. Like showing her knickers. And uh, her skivvies, and it get it gets you know bounced around the school. So I don't know if stuff like that continues, but I think that's the kind of thing where oh, it continues. <laughs> it yeah, gets way it worse. continues. Yeah, but that's a that's the kind of thing where I, I think the idea would be that if your kid is a good communicator, he's going home and being like, "Look, my friend." Like, this happened to her at school, and I'm concerned about it. Yeah, that's never going to happen. See, Rebecca, I think you got that trope wrong. The yeah. one I call the Dracula trope, and, and that gets picked up by Stephen King, where you have the group of people, and they are on their own because they are isolated from the rest of the world. The adults in Stranger Things can't help the kids. And uh, Van Helsing, Lucy, and the rest of them in, in Dracula, the rest of the world cannot help them, which is why the in this case, you know, like in It, we say the adults aren't helpful. They're absent. 
they're absent. In this case, the adults are it's, smart. it's the kids who are banding together, but to keep a secret from the, the adults. The adults are the antagonists, and it's different. But the adults are smart in this show. No, not, not, I think the adults no, 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 no. are portrayed in a horrible not way. They're the, completely ineffective. There are two sets of adults. There are the school adults, and there are the home adults. The parents are, are cool. The parents are, for the most part, smart, savvy. You get the impression they would be helpful. They're not absent. And there's the awesome cameo by Ricky from My So-Called yeah, Life. Great, yes, yeah, great. Yeah, good call out. Good call <laughs> But, uh, you know, it, it, it's But def- all of the kids, the reasons that Hannah points to them as being responsible have things to do with, has to do with what they did. Mostly they did something malevolent. The or one so, adult, yeah. The one adult is responsible for being incompetent. And that's very different. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes to show that all of the, I, I don't like the way that the adults are portrayed. You don't in general. Well, I don't say I don't like it. I say I, I, they're not they're not portrayed well. I'll, I'll tell you what I did like. And Laura, you know, as I, I don't know how you're going to land on this, and I'm curious to know. I liked how the school adults were very much driven by the fear of litigation and the overhanging uh. litigation that's brought up a lot in the show. And to me, that is very real. It's the reason why when you work in a newsroom, you're doing a story about a school. You can't get a teacher to talk to you. It's the reason yeah. why you can't get a school counselor to talk to you. It's the reason why when, you know, somebody I know who works in a school tells me a story kind of casually and then I think, oh, my God, this is something that should be reported on. Like it turns into a big deal because like schools are terrified of of yeah. litigation. And that's to me what a lot of the incompetence, as you're saying, calling it, a lot of it stems from that. What do you think, Laura? Yeah, that was something that did irritate me watching this because, you know, you're watching it and it seems, yes, this this threat, this perceived threat of litigation, in this case, it wasn't perceived, it actually was a real, you know, it was there, you know, kind of supersedes what you would hope these people are there to do, which is to look after the children and protect them and educate them. And it seems like um, it turns into more of like a CYA type situation because they're always like, oh, we might get in trouble for this. And, um, you know, and, and it's the same thing. I have friends who are teachers and it's like they'll tell me something and they'll be like, oh, shit, you work for don't say anything. I could get in trouble. And it's like, you know, you become, you know, jumpy paranoid because that's out there. And and so that did annoy me as I was watching this because I was getting frustrated with those school characters. But I mean, it was real and it was authentic to me, but it also made me annoyed that that's what it's come to. Laura, do you think that this show, if it reflected all of the best practices of what you're supposed to do around teenagers, around teenage communication, around issues of suicide and sexual assault in high school, if they did everything right in a way that was messaged properly, would this have been a show you wanted to watch? Or would it have been just a really boring after school special type show? Yeah, and that I was going to say the same thing because I think it's you know we're talking about changing the way that teenagers are talking about suicide. I don't think that they would have watched it. I think that they will watch this because it is a little bit more sensational. There is the angle of mystery. I think it's something that teenagers can watch and relate to more because it's interesting and I think yeah, I mean they could have tried to change some things around, but 
I think you would have lost your audience. Do you agree with Kevin that some of the performances in this show were excellent? Because I think a lot of the performances in this show were excellent. Yeah, I think that the character of Clay was very well done. Um, it was it was well done, you know, and it's like we talked about when we did Stranger Things and I was annoyed with Winona Ryder, but she was because she was portraying her character so well as the frantic mother. And in this case, Clay was just he his character was so well done that I found myself getting annoyed when he wasn't doing things. And I was like, oh, God, would you just fucking talk? Like, as I was watching, I mean, anybody else as you're watching, you're like, I'm like, oh, my God. But I was like, no, that's a sign that he's doing a good job. So, yeah, I I, I definitely think there was a lot of good performances. Um, You know, and there was some, like you said, the after school special angles. But overall, I mean, I think it was... It's hard because I can see why people are concerned about this. But at the same time, let's look at the positive. This is opening the discussion and the conversation about teen suicide. Yeah. Well, it's like, hey, Clay, you got suspended for three days. You could have listened to more than one take (laughs) in that time. He was climbing a mountain, Kevin. He was like rock climbing. How do I find D batteries? I can't find any D batteries. He was rock climbing with Bernardo from West Side Story, Kevin. Yeah. Jesus. To be serious for a minute, because we have a lot of listeners and we heard from them during when we talked about S-Town's episode six. You know, they can't look at certain things purely in an academic way like we tend to do because it's so personal to them. They've had similar experiences. And I know there are a lot of people out there who either grew up feeling this way or they know people who did. They know people who've taken their lives and it's it, it touches them in a way like they'll never be able to, quote unquote, enjoy. Right. A, a drama like this. Yeah, I, and, I, I said the show was fun to watch, and you didn't like it that I said that. Yeah, yeah, and I understand that, and I think you know we hear you. But if we do, we can't have the conversation if we just not do it. But I will. I again, I will point out that for everything that's really good about the way this drama was done, is exactly what makes it so bad in real life because it it reinforces everything that we know is wrong about teen suicide. You know, there's been some really great. Wait, you mean wrong about the communication around teens? The communication suicide. and the way that people perceive it, and and that the things that we know that do harm contribute. Yeah, that are not just neutral. Yes, you have a girl who is able to control the lives of dozens of people after her suicide because of her very elaborate yeah. podcast. A that quote she unquote made. normal seeming girl, right? Not the one who shows. A lot of signs. Prolonged signs of mental right. illness. Right. Um, you know, just the, the girl who right, you know, has been wronged again and again and again, and this is how she's getting back at everybody. And this will it's make, a revenge And fantasy. this will make the boy that she loves love him. It's a revenge fantasy. It, it is. Yeah. It is. And that's in a vacuum. If we make everybody in this 40 years old yeah. and it's Falcon Crest or something like that, we could look at it in a different way. But it's just it, it's I can't say why it is just different because it's teenagers. Children. There's a lot of great but teen it, noir that we've we've seen. Veronica Mars, Riverdale, which is oh my god, the Archie Comics. It should be good, but it is shouldn't be good, but it is. <laughs> it's you know, it's it's got a uh, tone and it's serious and it's and dark it, and it's dark and there's killing. Uh, killing and sexual assault and all these other and all of the same and elements. Veronica Mars, but, there was sexual assault and but, suicide and and murder. Yes, and it was fine. Yes, but this is also in some ways a blueprint, and that's what makes it in real life bad. I just think that that they the messaging from the show itself is we're going to start a conversation about teen suicide, but then the way they portray it is not a the wrong to me, conversation. But according to experts, is yeah. is is completely the wrong way of doing it and they're sending wrong messages and 
like the the suicide scene, which I did not see, but I've certainly read a hell of a lot about. Therapists have been like, that's not what you want to show people. Like that's that's triggering. Right. You know, and I and I think the thing is is that what Rebecca brought up before, which is, you know, if you do show a thing where all the kids do exactly what they're supposed to do, and then she probably doesn't commit suicide or whatever, is that a good show? And it's like, no, it isn't. But your two choices are not to make a completely irresponsible show that you then put out as being, let's start a conversation about teen suicide or making a really boring show. The idea is if you can't make a show that's going to be responsibly taking a look at a very serious topic because you're not going to get people to watch, then just don't freaking make it. Hmm. You know, I mean, how hard is that? So I, I, I hear you. Your thumbs down on 13 Reasons Why, and that's fine. And what I'm also hearing is that when we were talking about missing Richard Simmons, you also think it shouldn't have been made. But you said, since it is made, though, you know, it, it shouldn't have been made. But putting that aside, I thought it was really good. Um, this isn't one of those for you. This crosses a line where, like... You can't watch it, even though it was made, because it probably shouldn't have been made, right? Yeah, although I think the the thing with Richard Simmons that was interesting is I think that it succeeded in a way that wasn't intentional right. on that guy's part. Like Dan Taberski. What Dan succeeded in doing was not something he was trying to accomplish, but that he made something about celebrity and attitudes about celebrity mostly focused on himself. So he mm-hmm. thought he was doing one thing and he was doing another. With this, I you know, I only watched one episode. So I hate it when people like give me a one star review and said I read ten pages, couldn't get through the rest. Dude, I just star. shit on Jim Clemente and I didn't even listen to the damn show. So right. I, I'm there right so, there with you. So anyway, <laughs> I, I I like if it was that like we're recommending whether people should watch it, well, I got through one of thirteen episodes. So you say no and, and that's a, Thumbs down. Dude, that's why we call you our professional contrarian. Uh, Laura Bricker, um, what do you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways? Would you recommend, don't recommend, mixed messages, uh, 13 Reasons Why from Netflix? Boy, this is a tough... I I honestly don't know. I mean, I liked it. I found it disturbing. The suicide scene itself, I I was pretty disturbed by that. It was a lot more graphic than I was expecting. Um, I would say thumbs sideways because I think it depends who's going to be watching it. I don't know... If I would want, like, if I had a teenager, I would want them watching it. Um, but older kids, perhaps. But it, again, it, I, I'll go with thumb sideways because I'm, I'm really kind of undecided because there was things I liked, but I'm a different demographic. Right. I'm going thumbs up. I thought it was a good show. It's flawed. I mean, obviously, there's some cheesiness to it. A lot of controversy around it. I feel like if you feel like you're the kind of person who can watch a show like this and enjoy it for the entertainment value of it, because by the way, you may not like it, Kevin, but the show was entertaining and there were things about it that were fun and there were things about it that were interesting and colorful. The setting was great. It was very, um, you know, people loved Stranger Things, which was also about some kids with some real freaking serious problems, you know, living in a town. I think it may have been filmed. Some of the settings may have been the same. The town looked very much like the town in Stranger Things, by the way. There was a lot about the production that I liked. I loved like a lot of the performances. Um, was the story perfect? No. Was the storytelling perfect? No. Is there controversy? Yes. I still like the show. And if you think it's something where you can divorce the controversy from just watching a show that is entertaining and compelling about teenagers doing teenage bullshit things, you'll probably like it like I did. And you'll probably ask other people in secret and whispers like, did you like it too? Just like I'm doing. Uh, Kevin, what did you think? I, I Like someone asked me, you know, watch, don't watch. I'm a, I'm a 
I'm a hard thumb sideways. <laughs> That's not a hard anything. No, it is. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I let me then let me explain it like this. I thought that you know there are some a lot of good things about the storytelling and the acting. And you the were overall, harder binging it than I was. Like I was going to bed, and you were like, "I want to watch one more." I do want to see what happens. <laughs> yeah. I, w- I, w- I was drawn in to a lot of it. I think, like I said, it floundered in the middle a little bit, but I just can't tell somebody that they should watch this. Unless they have their eyes wide the fuck open. Right. You got to put your big boy and big girl pants on to watch this because it is not limited to the screen. It comes into your room and into your life. Now, look, if you have kids, you you should know that there's no scientific evidence as you talk to them about suicide, they'll want to commit suicide. That's just not true. It's a, it is a, a good starting point to talk to them about what do you think about this if they've already watched it or make the decision as a family whether you should. Uh, n- none of the experts have said tell your kids not to watch it. But I think you know people have had different life experiences. If you know you're not going to be able to handle it, then it's okay to pass. But I think otherwise you would find it a very compelling, important crime drama. It's also got a couple of really graphic sexual assault scenes in it, which we didn't even talk about. It's true. Yeah. Which, by the way, like, I'm not a big fan of the trigger warning culture at all, because I do feel like those scenes are important, and I think they were realistic. It says something when when you have, like, a a whole police procedural based around that kind of crime. Right. That it's almost, like, blasé. And the big thing we're talking about is the suicide at the end, which is the the fulcrum on the uh, which the whole story pivots. Right. What SVU, by the way, has made positive inroads in people's understanding mm-hmm. of sexual assault, and there are studies to show it. And I'm just going to go on record as having said okay. that. All tough right. call all around. It is a tough call all around, but I'm glad we talked about it. Uh, yeah. Speaking of controversial things on Netflix, I just want to make a programming note. Next week on the podcast, we're going to be talking about another thing, which is on Netflix, that a lot of people are telling us about, called Casting Jean Benet. And it does tie uh, to some of the things that we talked about earlier, which was that Jean Benet Ramsey show and the Jean Benet case in general. But apparently, this documentary is great. We're not asking you to watch it before next week if you don't want to, because we're just going to be reviewing it. But if you want to, it is available. That's yeah. what we're going to be yeah. watching on Netflix. All right, Kevin, in the uh, interest of full transparency and not being silly on this show, um, Will you be interested in reading another ad for this podcast right now? Yeah, you know, and this is one, you know, we, we talk about sort of the negative way of communicating. You're transitioning. Just read the ad, Kevin. Well, how about a really positive way to maintain family memories and tell your story? That sounds good. Yeah, everyone has a family member who tells the best stories, uh, be they anecdotes from their childhood or tales passed down from generations. And these are timeless treasures, and now they're easier than ever to preserve thanks to story worth. Nice. Yeah, StoryWorth safeguards your narrative so that future generations can enjoy them. You purchase a subscription for somebody you love, and each week, StoryWorth sends them an email with a question about their life. And they reply with their story. They can either use phone or email. And then after a year, all those stories are bound into a beautiful keepsake book. And the stories are private. They're just for you and your family. But it's a great way to bridge that geographic gap between you and other family and members. that emotional gap. That emotional gap. It's a look. It's Mother's Day's coming up. Father's Day's coming up. Uh, maybe high school or college graduation. It's a great way for you to participate and tell something to a family member about how much you love them, and maybe find out a little more about 
their life and the things that you never knew about them and, and keep it around forever. Don't buy it for your teenager. It'll be day after day of nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Not much. Yeah. It was fine. <laughs> so how do people get into this Story Worth thing, Kevin? Well, for $20 off your Story Worth subscription, you visit storyworth.com slash crime. crime. That's storyworth.com slash crime. Crime. What else, Kevin? We have a new advertiser here, and they're all about zero. What? They're about zero. Nada? Nada. Niente? Who likes zero? What are you talking about? Well, I mean, not everybody likes... It is. Like, nobody likes it when they have zero milk, right? I don't think you can say zero milk. (laughs) You have zero Facebook likes. I have zero dollars in my bank account. Yeah, but sometimes zero can be good, like when you're shopping with... Zebit. <gasps> Zebit. I shopped with Zebit. Yeah. You go to Zebit.com. That's Z-E-B-I-T.com. And you can shop millions of products and pay over time with no in- interest. So you do all your e-commerce shopping like you normally would. It's like layaway, but you get the stuff. Yeah. You, at Zebit, you can buy things you know, from electronics and appliances, Xboxes, iPads, gift cards. And you pay for them, but not with credit. You basically pay with them through Zebit, and there's no interest, and you pay a little bit off. It is kind of like layaway. It's like, you know, when you're buying a gift for a kid for graduation or for Father's Day or for, you got it's wedding season, you know, you buy it, and then you pay for it, but you're really paying for it for like 10 years. When you put it on your credit on card. On your credit card, yeah. right? Yeah. The compounding interest. It's not like you can't afford the the thing, you know, that all of a sudden the $50 item becomes a $400 item when you're finally paying it off. Why not just spend 50 bucks? You zeb it and buy the items that you want. Great selection. And then you pay it off as you go along. You can get up to $2,500 of credit to shop on Zebit for all kinds of items, all your favorite brands at competitive prices and all paid over time at zero interest. So shop today with zero interest, zero fees, zero credit check, on zebit.com slash crime. That's Z-E-B-I-T dot com slash crime. crime. Zebit.com slash crime. Crime. Now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. This crime comes with the best photograph I have seen on the <laughs> internet in a long time. We have to add it to our web post. Go to our website, crimewriterson.com. Check out this photo And shop using our Amazon link. I'm just a little plug right there. But this is not your typical cat stuck in a tree story. Police in Newport, Oregon, were summoned to an emergency call of a feline in a tree holding what appeared to be an assault rifle. (laughs) If you look at the wire service photo, it looks like the white cat with a little like swoopy hair, which is just a marking, it turns out, has its paws around a black, like, AR-15 assault rifle. It's complete with clip and scope. But instead, when you zoom in and look a little closer, that menacing weapon turns out to be just a branch on the tree. It looks exactly like yeah. an assault rifle. And he's holding it just like you would hold an assault Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Police uh, posted this encounter on social media. They said the cat was given a, quote, verbal warning <laughs> not to pose with lethal-looking sticks while wearing such poor camouflage. (laughs) So here's my question, guys. Uh, If a SWAT team came for your pet, whether it was based on a photo or not, what would it be that your pet was in suspicion of doing? Toby Ball, I'm going to start with you. I'm afraid Littlefoot would be dragged off to The Hague. No, war crimes. (laughs) War crimes against, against chipmunks. Is it chipmunk season for Littlefoot? It's always chipmunk season for Littlefoot. (laughs) 
<laughs> what about you, Laura Bricker? Uh, of all your pets, if the SWAT team came for one of them, what crime would they be under suspicion of committing? Oh, my God. I, I can't even begin to start with all my pets. Um, I'm going to go with Buddy the dog for trespassing because this is something that he is addicted to the compost heap at the landscaper next door. Oh. Um, and so during I let him out while I'm working and I'll be like, God, he's been gone for a while and he's over there rolling. So he's doing a lot of trespassing right now. Uh, Kevin, do you remember when Stuart used to go to the elementary school that we used to sit live next Jeez. to and like walk in the door and walk down the hallways of the elementary school? <laughs> the crazy thing is we had like one of those electric fences. He would just run through it. He just, you know, because he had the little thing that would beep and give him just a very tiny, just a very tiny. We you don't know, have one of those anymore. It's no, we don't use it anymore. But because he basically would decide he wants to go to the elementary school, he would get a running start and yes. just bust right through. And the other time he ran over to the dog catcher's house and went into Jesus his kitchen. Christ. The, honest to God, oh. folks, he actually walked into the new dog catcher's <laughs> house in town. We well, gotta- that being said, I would say if a SWAT team came for Stewart, despite all the things that we just said about him, he'd be accused of the crime of killing you with cuteness because he is the goddamn oh. cutest dog in the entire world. I was oh. going to say disturbing the peace. Why is that, Kevin? Because he <laughs> barks at like goddamn everything. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Laura, if there were a squirrel arm in our backyard, our dog would lose his freaking mind. Oh, Laura Bricker. I'll save one for you. Speaking of pets, uh, we have to ask you the question that we often do. Is there a cat of the week this week? Um, There is, and I'm going to say I have been getting some great entrants. We had a parrot entrant this week, a hedgehog. Um, People are really getting creative with their pets, but in honor, this is kind of for Kevin, because is it Star Wars Day this May the 4th be with you. Yes, (laughs) the day we're recording. Yes. You're so sexy when you say that. So we're going to go with uh, Derek's cat, Guinness, who had his little pair of Yoda ears on. Nice, nice. For Star Wars Day. And Laura Bricker, if our listeners want to tweet to you and send you pictures of their pets to pitch you on making them the cat slash pet of the week, how can they reach you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And that's L-A-R-A, correct? Even though I pronounce it Laura? That is. That's okay. (laughs) So does my husband. And uh, Toby Ball, if our listeners want to tweet to you, maybe uh, share your hatred of 13 Reasons Why, how can they reach you on Twitter? They can reach me at at Toby Ball, N-H. And you can also, the new Twitter account for the new podcast is at RF Dystopia. And the new podcast is called Radio Free Dystopia. Check it out. It's pretty great. And Kevin Flynn, our listeners want to tweet to you and uh, harangue you over getting verified the first time you tried. How can they find you on Twitter? They can find me at the Twitter verified account, Kevin P. Flynn. You'll know it's mine because it has that little blue button that says, I am actually Kevin P. Flynn. (laughs) Whereas you'll just have to guess that that's Rebecca Lavoie. That's what you have to guess. They've reached the right one. (laughs) Don't hate the player. Hate the game. Oh, I hate the game a lot. I know you do. A lot. If you want to tweet to me, perhaps lend me a little bit of your outrage for not being verified on the third try, even though... For the record, I have better creds, better grammar, and more followers than Kevin P. Flynn. You can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also find me on Instagram at Reb Lavoie. And this show is on Twitter. We will tweet back to you if you tweet to us listeners at Crime Writers On. Don't forget to head to our website where you can sign up for our newsletter, which we promise we are going to get back on sending those out soon. And buy stuff using our Amazon link. 
before you close your podcast app, leave us an iTunes review. It makes a huge difference. And check out our other show, These Are Their Stories, The Law and Order Podcast. Our handsome line producer is Henry Lavoie. Our theme music was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in Square Egg Studio at Partners in Crime Media, which you may know is just a closet in our basement that we used to call Studio C. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. I'm Rebecca. Excuse me. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. <laughs> you do that every fucking time, and I fall for it every time. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about journalism, pop, culture. I'm doing it again because I hear sipping everywhere. <laughs> All right, Bill O'Reilly. Here we go. I hear now walking with wooden shoes. I'm putting my glass down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to stay hydrated. Toby's wearing clogs. That's okay. the truth. Okay, ready? The Dutch right, I'm ready. Boy podcast. Everyone be quiet for I can turn you all down, but then I'll have to level check you again. You don't want that. So <laughs> anything else you'd like to expel from your body? <laughs> okay. I'm Rebecca Lavoy. Is this the real one? <laughs> <laughs> Following its tour de force off-Broadway show, Chris Gethard career suicide is coming to HBO. After his public response to an anonymous fan letter about depression went viral, Chris was encouraged to tell stories about the darker moments in his life, merging blunt, unapologetic honesty with his signature brand of comedy. By opening up about his own mental health struggles in this raw, provocative one-man show, Chris's hope is to destigmatize issues like depression and suicide while still being incredibly funny. See how Chris's comedy and extensive stand-up experience cut through this dark subject matter in Chris Gethard, Career Suicide, premiering Saturday, May 6th at 10 p.m. on HBO.